One of my favorite passages of scripture is the uh, second half of 1 Samuel and pretty much all of 2 Samuel, which covers the life of David. David lived a life that was filled with hardship. The second half of his life was filled with hardship that he kind of caused. You know, various sins or foolishness or being an absentee father, you know, things like that, that brought hardship into his life. But on the front end of David's life, when he was a young man before he was the actual king in Israel, he suffered a lot during that period of his life for doing good, for being a righteous person, for being a man of faith. His story was that as a teenager, he was anointed by God privately to be the future king in Israel. Nobody knew about it except him and the prophet. But God wanted everybody to know David's name, so when Goliath came out and challenged all of Israel to battle, there was no one in Israel who had the faith to go out into battle against him except for David. And so when God gave David victory, David was thrust onto the national scene. Nobody knew his name the day before Goliath, but after Goliath, everybody knew his name. They even made a song about him. It went, Saul has slain his thousands. That was the current king, Saul. But David has slain tens of thousands. You know, they ascribed tens of thousands to David. And when Saul heard that song, he was enraged and envious. And Saul began systematically persecuting David for being this giant killer that the people loved in the palace, but then eventually in the wilderness when David fled for his life, David was mistreated by Saul, in effect, you could say, because he was a good man. He was a man of faith. He was a man of righteousness. He had done what God asked him to do, and he got suffering as a result. And for the most part, David did really well in the wilderness. He stayed allegiant to God. I mean, he, he really redeemed the time. He wrote psalms to God. He prayed prayers to God. He wrote songs for God, and he trained men for God. There were many men that came to him that were distressed and discontented, tired of Saul's leadership, and David trained them up out there in the wilderness. But there is a point, there was a point in David's life where he just grew sick and tired of being on the run and treated the way that he was being treated for being a righteous and godly man. And so he said to himself in 1 Samuel 28, he said, it's better for me that I would go live with the Philistines and have peace with them than to suffer mistreatment amongst, among the people of God. God wanted him in Israel, but David was tired of being there because it hurt. And so he decided to assimilate into Philistine culture and society, the very people that Goliath had come from. And for a year and a half, David left God's covenant community so that he could be connected to the world. Eventually, a catastrophe came into David's life. It brought him to his knees and surrender to God. And he strengthened himself in the Lord and he came back to God. He came back to the nation of Israel. He got back to where he was supposed to be. And I don't know if you're here today. And this might be a moment for you where God is trying to draw you back from some place that you've been running, some thing that you've gone to. He's trying to call you back into his kingdom. And I hope that David's story helps you know that you can come back. There is room and space for you. Your story is not yet finished. But I tell David's story to highlight the fact that sometimes it's just tiring to be mistreated for being a righteous person. 
And I mention that because in this section of scripture that we're in, we've been studying about following Jesus in the passage that we're in. And Peter has told us repeatedly that Jesus suffered for righteousness. And in fact, he told us that we also would suffer for righteousness's sake. But to put it plainly, sometimes it's hard to suffer for righteousness. Sometimes we're just over it. Sometimes we don't want to do it. And in moments like that, we might be tempted, like David was, to just assimilate to society around us or respond in some other way. So God gave to us the book of 1 Peter and this little section of 1 Peter to kind of help us uh, with this mentality that we need to endure. This lifestyle that Peter's going to propose has Three specific confessions that I want to look at today. Three confessions. I know some of you come from a, like a more religious environment or background, and when you hear the word confession, you think that it means something bad that you've done that you're telling somebody about, and it can mean that, but it can also mean like a statement that you agree with that you are proclaiming. All right, That's what I mean by these three confessions. So here's the first confession that we get from our text. Number one, You have to say this. You have to say, I will suffer for Jesus. All right? I will suffer for Jesus. Some of you guys actually started doing it right there. You started actually repeating it after me. That's good. I should have done that all day. I will suffer for Jesus. That's the first confession. Look at verse 1. This is where we get it. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. That's where I get that statement. To be able to say, I will suffer for Jesus comes straight from the word. He says, Jesus suffered in the flesh, so we have to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. Now, when we suffer for Jesus, it's tempting to feel like we're losing. You know, when we're marginalized for Jesus, ridiculed for Jesus, ostracized for Jesus, even in some parts of the world today, persecuted for Jesus, it's easy to feel in those moments like we're losing, like we're being defeated. But Peter has tried to communicate to us that that's not so. He told the story of Jesus, Jesus's narrative arc, his story, that he suffered, died, buried, was rose, risen from the grave, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's in glory today. Then he told Noah's story, that Noah went through a similar kind of story or arc. He suffered, endured, was delivered, and now he's in ultimate glory. And that's supposed to be our story as well. It will be our story. If you're a believer in Christ today, though you might suffer for Jesus today, you might be marginalized for Jesus today, people might make fun of you for being a Jesus person, whatever, that's not the end of the story. There's a moment coming where you'll be in glory with the Lord. That's the end of your story. But that helps us understand that suffering for and in Jesus is not defeat, And now Peter is telling us that we need to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. We need to think like Jesus who suffered in the flesh. And he uses like military grade words to describe how we're to have this mentality. He says in verse one, you have to arm yourself with the same way of thinking. I can only imagine what that's like to arm yourself for an actual physical battle. I imagine that with great care and discernment, a soldier is placing his armor upon his body, making sure every element is in working order. He's diligent and sober in that moment, meticulously arming himself 
so to speak. And here Peter tells us we need to arm ourselves with the mentality that Jesus had that we might suffer at times with and for Jesus. Now I think personally, and you can decide if you agree with me or not, but I think that when a Christian says, I will suffer for Jesus, when they make that confession, they become a real weapon in the hand of God. Because it's really hard to get things done in the kingdom without a mentality that says, look, there's going to be times where my allegiance to Jesus, it's just going to hurt. It's going to be painful. It'll be inconvenient. It'll be hard at moments in time. I think without this mentality, the errors I've been talking about in 1 Peter, you know, the errors of responding with fleshly anger to being marginalized, or fleeing in unwise self-preservation, or conforming in cowardly fear. I think we're tempted to those responses to being marginalized for Jesus more when we don't have the mentality that says, this is normal. It's normal to suffer for Jesus. But when we realize that we're going to suffer for Jesus, we just become better at being what Jesus said we're supposed to be about, making disciples of all nations, bringing the gospel to the end of the world. To put it, put it another way, once suffering for Jesus becomes abhorrent to a Christian community, they just think we shouldn't ever have to go through this, then that Christian community will respond to hostility in ways the Bible considers abhorrent. You've got to have the mentality, I will suffer for Jesus. One of, my, one of my favorite characters in church history is this man named William Tyndale. I don't know if you guys know the story of William Tyndale or not, but he, he lived right around the time of the Great Reformation. He was kind of in that season of church history. And uh, William Tyndale was an Englishman, and uh, he had this crazy idea. His crazy idea was he thought that the Bible should be written also in English so that English-speaking people could read the Bible. Doesn't that sound like a crazy idea? That was his thought. But the church leaders at the time were like, no, we got to keep the Bible in Latin, a language like hardly anybody knows. <laughs> we got to keep it in Latin so that only a specific group of people can read the Bible. The, the regular population, they can't handle the scripture. Tyndale was like, forget that. So he said to himself, I'm going to suffer. This is going to be hard, but I'm going to suffer for Jesus. So one of the first things that he did is he went through the process of learning three languages. He learned Latin, then Greek, biblical Greek, and biblical Hebrew. He mastered them so that he could become a translator of scripture. Then, before the era of, you know, word processors and hard drives and all of that, he began painstakingly by hand creating his own translation into English from the Latin, Greek, and Hebrew New and Old Testaments. And he experienced some setbacks. It wasn't all, you know, candy canes and unicorns for him as he went through this process. There was one moment where the workshop that he secretly worked in because what he was doing was illegal, there was a time where there was a fire that destroyed about a decade of work. And the dude just started again the next day. Just got back on the horse and just kept going. Then there was another time where he had to hire uh, secret printers and printing presses in Germany because it was illegal to be, you know, the printing press was new technology, but it was illegal to be making copies of the Bible. 
and smuggling them into England. So he had to hire these secret printing presses that were willing to do this work. And there were a couple of raids of, of the authorities who took away his work. And again, he would start right over again. And the man just persistently, through terrible health and difficulty, he did the work. And I think part of it was because he had that mentality, I will suffer for Jesus. This is just going to be part of the work. And I'm not going to take my suffering as a sign that I'm somehow in the wrong vein of life. And I'm so thankful for that man because I think many of us today are recipients in some way of his persistence of getting the Old and New Testaments into the English language. I think it really impacted the English-speaking world and advanced the English-speaking world in many ways. But we've got to have that mentality, that I will suffer for Jesus mentality. And I'm trying to give it a qualifier all morning. You know, I will suffer is one statement, but I will suffer for Jesus is a totally different statement. That's what I'm trying to highlight because that's what Peter's been highlighting in this letter. And I used to teach First Peter uh, back in the day, and I would teach about, you know, trials and difficulties and, you know, sicknesses and things like that. And the book of First Peter can totally help you with those kind of everyday trials that every human experiences. But Peter is specifically talking about the kinds of trials that are unique to Christians for, for following Jesus. He said in First Peter 3.14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness's sake. So this is the kind of suffering that is attached to being allegiant to Jesus. Not suffering in general, not suffering for foolishness sake, that's for sure. Not for being inconvenienced. Not even suffering for a personal conviction that we have, but for the sake of biblical doctrine or the lifestyle that flows from it. So that's the first statement that we will make. I will suffer for Jesus. So real happy message we got here this morning. That's point one. Okay, point two is this. Uh, we we want to be able to say, we want to make the confession, I'm moving on from sin. I'm moving on from sin. I'm trying to say it in a specific way. Peter's going to say ceased from sin, but I don't want to give the impression that we've somehow mastered all temptation and we don't struggle with temptation today. We will. We do. Uh, but I'm also not trying to give the idea that like, you know, at some point, I'll get around to moving on from sin. Like, it needs to be a current experience in our lives. And, you know, there's all kinds of polls that have been done about modern Christians in the West, particularly, and what they keep discovering or un unearthing over and over again is that, generally speaking, for many professing Christians, their lives follow the moral code of the culture much more than the moral code of Scripture. So we, we want to reverse that here at Calvary. We don't want to have those that kind of life. We want to be a kind of person that says, no, I'm moving on from sin. I'm following God's word. So let's read the second part of verse one into verse three. He says, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. All right, there's some stuff in there. But I think the first question that we need to ask is, what, is, what does Peter mean when in verse 1 he says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin? You know, we might feel a little badly about that statement, like ceased from sin, you know? 
You might be thinking about your life this last week and go like, well, I know, I, I struggled a little bit. I didn't cease from sin. You know, I mean, you might be one of those guys that's like, you know, I, I never sin anymore. And I'd love to chat with you a little bit about that. But, uh, you know, the reality is that we're, we battle temptation. We battle sin. It comes into our lives. What, what does he mean when he says, he who suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin? Does Peter mean that suffering causes sinlessness? Sometimes we talk like this. We have platitudes. They're not really from the Bible, but we'll have platitudes. You know, like, if it doesn't kill me, it makes me stronger. And kind of the idea there is, when I suffer, uh, it, it makes me better. It makes me better. But, but I think we have to recognize that's not always true. There are people, I mean, there's a reason why we have the phrase in our modern, you know, kind of vocabulary and way of speaking, we say hurt people hurt people. The reason we say that is because not everybody who's gone through suffering gets better as a result. Sometimes people become more bitter, more angry. Uh, they, they have a shorter fuse. They become greedy, like whatever. There could be all kinds of different responses to suffering. Job is even an example of this. He was a righteous guy, but when he began really intensely suffering, though he did really well and held fast to his integrity, God did have a bone to pick with him because Job spent a lot of words defending himself rather than defending God and honoring God. So he doesn't mean that suffering produces sinlessness. Does he mean that suffering evidences sinlessness? Like, if I'm suffering, it's a clue that I'm doing the right thing, okay? Like, if life is hard, I must be on the right track. Well, it could be. There are some things that are worth doing that it will be hard to accomplish them. Um, but if you read the book of Proverbs, over and over again, it talks about things that are really hard in life that sometimes are harder because the person doing them is foolish about the way they're living life. So through folly, we can make life harder. That's not suffering producing sinlessness. No, what Peter means is something more specific than that. What he means is that when someone suffers for Jesus, not just suffering in general, but for Jesus, it signifies something really important in their lives. It signifies that this is the kind of person that has made a decision to break from a sinful lifestyle. They might still battle temptation, of course they do, but suffering for Christ is an indicator that they are committed. This is the kind of person that believes that it's better to do right and suffer for it than to continue in sin. The person who says, I will suffer for Jesus, according to Peter, has made a determination that they want to move on from sin, that they've made a break with sin. Now, all these declarations that Peter makes here in verse 1 through 3, I think they're all phrases that are best to say with humility. Partly because of the implied reality in Peter's mind that these were our practices. I mean, he says... We've ceased from sin. That means that we used to be all in. He says the rest of our time, meaning that our, the previous life was spent in a certain way. He says no longer should we live that way. That means that we used to. And the time that has passed, he says, was enough for that old life. 
So the Christian who says, I'm moving on from sin, they're not looking down their nose at anybody. They're not feeling like they're better than anybody because they know they were swimming along with the lust of the flesh and eyes and life, pride of life. They were living that kind of way. And they have that tendency and propensity as well. So there's a humility. I think another reason why these exhortations should put humility in our hearts is because why would Peter have to say them if we weren't susceptible to falling to them? I mean, he's urging this church, and I think urging us to resist sin, to resist human passions, and to resist doing what society, the culture, wants us to do. And he gives descriptions even about that society, sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. But if they didn't have some kind of appeal to us, if the way of the world didn't have an appeal to us, we really wouldn't even need these exhortations. Like, I'll give you an example. If a, if a research paper came out tomorrow from like the people at Stanford or something, and the research paper revealed that kale is really terrible for you, I just, I'd be like a day of celebration to me. I would never feel a temptation, like ever, for the rest of my life. I'd never be in the store and be like, oh man, I'm so tempted to get some kale. You know, I just got to have that. I know it's terrible for me, but I really want to get it. But the, the, so the, the reason that I wouldn't be tempted is because I, there's no draw, there's no appeal. Now, when I go to In-N-Out, on the other hand, it's a whole different story. You know, it's like the same t thing every time I go to In-N-Out. Like a, I pull up to the register and I'm looking at the menu, you know, and they got like the biggest burger you can get is the one with two patties. And I'm always like, yeah, but I know I could get a third or fourth patty if I chose. And generally, I'll go that route. And then... I'm looking at the picture of the fries, and I also know, like, you could order the fries animal style, where, like, fries are already bad for you, but they'll put, like, cheese on them and stuff, <laughs> just make them terrible for you. And if you want to, you could even throw in the milkshake. Like, it's enough to feed a little village somewhere, <laughs> but I'll, you know, it's from time to time, I'm tempted, I'm drawn into that direction. Why? Because it's good. It tastes good. Why is Peter having to exhort us in this way? Why do we need exhortations like, hey, eat healthy? You know, be responsible, be a good steward. We need exhortations like that because the alternative, it's appealing. Peter, I think we should be humbled that he's saying to us, look, you need these exhortations because you will be tempted to go the way of this world. That's just the reality. You will be tempted to go the way of this world. And I think we're so much more discipled by the world and society than we even know. We're just swimming in the culture that we're in. So Peter is helping us understand, look, this is not pharisaical pride that you need to develop looking down at other people, but to take care of your own business. Now, I love the way Peter describes this. He says, the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. I don't know if you guys remember this, but Peter, he had a real issue with literal Gentiles for a while. In Acts 10, God gave him a vision. You know, about for the first 10 years of the church, the church was predominantly Jewish. And Peter is a Jewish guy, great, raised up in a Jewish household. And God told him to, in a vision, rise and kill and eat food that was forbidden to Jewish people but was acceptable in the Gentile world. And Peter told the Lord three times. He said, not so, Lord. I've never eaten anything common or unclean. I'm not touching that food. Peter was resistant to the Gentile world, but by the time he wrote this letter, Peter had watched the church shift from predominantly Jewish to predominantly Gentile in nature, racially. 
So when Peter says this here, what's he talking about? Is he talking in racial terms? You know, don't follow the ways of the Gentiles? No, I don't think so. You see, in this letter, Peter uses Old Testament terminology and applies it to the church. Like, remember in chapter 2 when he said, you guys are a, the church is a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation. You're God's elect people. These are all terms that apply to the Old Testament people of Israel. Peter rips them out of the Old Testament and applies them to us. He said, you guys are meant to declare the praises of God to the world around you, just like the Old Testament saints were supposed to do in Israel to the Gentile nations. That's what you're to do today as the church. So I think for Peter, when he thinks of the ways of the Gentiles, it's not a racial thing that Peter is saying at this stage. What he's saying is, I'm taking that term, that concept that the Israelites would have thought of the Gentile world, and I'm saying that the church should be thinking about those who don't yet know Jesus in a similar way. There's a way of life out there that we don't adopt. There's a way of doing things out there that we're not supposed to be about. Deuteronomy 12, verse 30 said to the people of Israel, take care that you be not ensnared to follow the nations and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods that I also may do the same? That's the same perspective that God wants us to have today as the church. I'm not supposed to be looking around going, how can I be just like the world? I'm supposed to look into the word and say, how can I follow my Lord better? I'm to be holy because he is holy. All right, one last word about this second confession. I'm moving on from sin. And I'm not going to get all into these six specific sins that Peter mentioned. Some of them, as you guys read them, you might have gone, man, I didn't even know words like that were in the Bible. But as you're looking at them, each one of them is something that destroys rather than builds up a society and a person. Sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. These are all things that feel empowering, exciting, titillating in the moment, but bring pain afterwards, destruction afterwards, and tear down communities. The Bible calls these things the fleeting pleasures of sin for a reason. They are pleasurable in that moment, but the next day they hurt. So When we're saying, I'm moving on from sin, you have to be thinking about what is it that I'm moving on from, okay? What's your mindset towards sin? Let me ask you this. Do you think of sin as something that is bad because it's forbidden? Do you think of sin as something that's bad that's forbidden? If you're thinking that way, then you would think something like this. You would think, well, the Bible says these things, There's certain things, do's and do nots, that the Bible says, and I don't know why it says them. You know, I'd like to do them. They seem exciting. I want to go there, but, you know, I guess God is in charge, so I got to do what he says kind of thing. That would be the mentality that says sin is bad because it's forbidden. I want you to reverse that, and I want you to, if you're in that camp, Instead, see sin as something that's forbidden because it's bad. In other words, you have a loving Heavenly Father who looks out at your life. He sees the way that he's designed you, and he knows, hey, there's certain activities, actions, things that you would do or not do 
that would hurt you and hurt the society that you're in and trying to build or the community that you're part of. And so I'm forbidding these things from you because I know that they are harmful to you. I know their destructive nature. So you've got to have that perspective when you say, I'm moving on from sin. All right, let's close with our last, um, our last confession. Confession number three. I can see Riley over here. He's got his guitar. He's ready to go. He's like, Nate, hurry up. So let's go through the last one. Number three, you know, first I'll suffer for Jesus. I'm moving on from sin. But number three, I might be vilified. I might be vilified. And here we look at verse four together. If you look in your Bibles, he said, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. Peter expected that our refusal to live like the rest of society does, it will surprise some people. And since we're not carried along, according to Peter, with the same, in the same flood of debauchery, I love that phrase, it just kind of expresses like the move of this society and culture like a wave, a tidal wave, just carrying us along. Most people just unthinkingly just going right along with it. But as a believer, you're saying, no, I'm different, I'm not going that route. Peter said, people might malign you for that. And the Christians that Peter wrote to, they were experiencing that. They were right in the throes of this because they were kind of seen as disruptive to Roman society. They wouldn't bow to Caesar. They were not partaking in a lot of aspects of Roman society. There was plenty in the Roman world that they could receive, plenty they could do, plenty they could redeem, but there were some things they had to reject. And that rejection surprised many non-believers, so they maligned the church for being different. All right, so let's think about this in our kind of situation. There was a time, like I said earlier, where the, for the first 10 years of the church, the church was predominantly Jewish, and it existed in Jewish communities. So what that meant was that if you were a Christian living in your Jewish community, your morals or your lifestyle was very, very similar to the morals of the society that you were in. So in those first 10 years of the church, a lot of the persecution that the Jewish community brought against the Christian community, it wasn't because of the Christian's lifestyle, but it was because of their beliefs, their doctrine. Okay, so you guys, are, you guys believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We can't believe that you believe that you know, and persecution would come. Then as the church spread beyond Jewish communities into the surrounding nations and world, the surrounding nations and world at that time were very pluralistic. So it's almost like a collection of religions. So it's really not that big of a deal to have doctrines or beliefs that other people didn't have, but it was the lifestyle that Christians were living. They were not going away with the Greco-Roman way of life. So Persecution or marginalization shifted from beliefs to lifestyle during that stage of the church's existence. And I mention both of those because we're living in a post-Christian culture and society here in the West, here in California, here in the United States. And I think as a result, what we have is the potential of being marginalized or having hostility directed in our direction for both of those things for both our doctrines, which are now being considered more and more by the mainstream as toxic to our world, 
but also for our lifestyle that is just different and contrary to the way of many. One scholar said, this is a problem that will recur whenever Christians are forced by their faith to oppose cultural values widely held in the secular world within which they live. Now, why would this happen, though? Why would people malign us for the way that we live? Well, partly because it's like an implied indictment of someone else's way of life. Now, that's not how we mean it, you know, because for us, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm trying to be obedient to God, but I, I am not ever trying to communicate to someone that through obedience to God, I have found God's favor. You know, I'm not trying to preach a false gospel with my life, trying to tell people, hey, if you're good enough, God will accept you. But that's a lot of times what people think or see. Like, okay, you're trying to be a certain way so that you can be looked at a certain way by God himself. No, we want to preach the gospel. We were dead in trespasses and sins. We needed Jesus to save us from our sins and to deposit his righteousness into our bodies. But another reason that this maligning word can come at times is that our lifestyles, like the Christians that Peter wrote to, sometimes disrupt the accepted flow of society. The Christians that Peter wrote to were seen as haters of the Roman way of life, and people wanted to build that Roman society together. And Christians, in their mind, weren't helping build that particular vision of society uh, that they had. And everybody has kind of their vision of the way they want society to be. Just this morning, I was out on my morning walk, and I <laughs> walked by a car that had, the, had a bumper sticker on it, and it said, love is the answer. Love is the answer. I thought, that just sounds so good, but it's just all about everybody's individual definition of what love is. And what love, being loving is. This is, just, this is just a platitude. It just doesn't mean anything. It's not going to really get the job done. But everybody has that person that, with that bumper sticker. They have a specific vision of how they want everyone to behave in order to live out that ethos that they are preaching, that love is the answer. So when these new believers, like us, begin following the way of Jesus, uh, there will be times where it's disruptive. Like, how many of you, I, I want to see your hands... How many of you, you are a first-generation Christian? In other words, your parents were not believers. And you came to Jesus, your parents were not believers, okay? That's, that's pretty cool. You probably have had the experience that all of the people Peter was writing to experienced. See, every Christian that Peter was writing to in that church, they were all first-generation Christians. They're, none of their parents were Christians, uh, unless they led them to Christ, and when that happens, it can be disruptive because a family even will set certain rhythms and uh, liturgies and traditions based on their faith. You come into Jesus, there might be even certain things that you say, I can't do that with you guys anymore. That's not what I'm about anymore. And that disruption can produce that maligning word. That's just an example of the kind of thing that Peter is talking about. All right, so let's close by looking at our last two verses just real quickly. There's something to know and something to pray in these two verses. He says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That's the thing to know. Everybody's going to have to give an answer for their lives. And then this is the thing to pray, verse 6, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, meaning spiritually dead more than likely, 
that though judged in the flesh the way people are, that means they die, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So what Peter is saying is what we're rooting for in someone's life, even those who malign us, we're praying that the gospel will come to them even though they're spiritually dead. They'll believe in the gospel, and then when they physically die, they'll live in the spirit the way God does with him. So the, the, the thing to know is everyone's going to have to give an account for their lives. And the thing to pray is for the salvation of even those who vilify us. As I've been preparing this teaching and getting ready to share it with all of you, just one last thought. I've just been thinking about and, and praying for those of you, especially who are just kind of, you're, you're younger in age. Maybe you're younger as a Christian, but you're younger in age. And uh, I've just been praying for you through this whole series in First Peter, because I know that, you know, you're, you're living in a time, you know, when I was coming up, I could tell people that I was a Christian, and even if they're like, well, that's kooky, you know, I don't believe in that, that sounds kind of weird, uh, it wasn't a hostile kind of thing, but I, I'm realizing more and more that for many of you guys that are younger, it can, it can feel that way, you're, you're, you're like, you almost feel like I want to go underground, like I was talking to a guy last night who, uh, is in, in leadership at Cal Poly University. And he was just sharing. He said, you know, I love ministering to these young students. He's a Christian man. He said, you know, but it's, it's challenging for them because the stuff that they hear about, the pressure that they're under, it almost feels like there's something wrong with being a Christian. And so it's challenging for them to even make that confession that I'm a follower of Jesus because of the kind of cultural moment and mood that we're in today. So perhaps these words from Peter, he's just kind of saying like, hey, this is kind of the way it is. Just be ready for it. Your story's not over. Be able to say, look, there will be times I'm going to suffer for Jesus. I'm going to move on from sin. And I might at times be vilified for my walk in relationship with him.